0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is part two of my conversation with Yasha Monk about his book The Identity Trap, the story of power and ideas in our time. If you haven't listened to part one, I strongly recommend pausing this episode now. In part one, I offer a more thorough introduction for these episodes. Yasha and I then start with some context around why each of us approach this topic— We talk about why he calls the identity synthesis a trap. And most importantly, we spend a good amount of time on the philosophical roots of the ideology. Here in part two, we dive further into identity and what happened on Tumblr that spread to the rest of the Internet and ultimately to mainstream journalism. The with-us-or-against-us mentality, infighting within progressive organizations, cancel culture, distrust in experts, whether the identity synthesis is compatible with liberalism, and how to deal with backlash and have more constructive conversations about it.
1: I think those are some of the core themes of what I would call the identity synthesis. Today and that's why that's why I think that's a helpful term, the identity synthesis. It synthesizes these different ideas about identity in this new kind of mix that really helps to set our public culture today.
0: One of the one of the moments um, this really started to become clear to me, at least how how um, how pernicious the popularized version of of this logic um, was was during a talk Jonathan Haidt was giving um, just a couple of years ago, when he traced the um, uh Kimberly Crenshaw's work to what is now probably known as the wheel of identity, or or um, in other words, some, some people may be familiar with this, but if you imagine um, a bunch of intersecting spokes um, where at one end of each spoke, you will have, um, uh, each spoke is an identity. So at one end, you might have gay, the other end is straight. At, at one end of another spoke is uh, woman, the other end is man. Another one might be a spoke of of, of race. At one end is white, at one end is black. And so what you have in this wheel is a bunch of intersecting spokes and a horizontal line, essentially. And what Haidt's criticism of this device uh, was, is that anybody above the horizontal line essentially takes on a positive moral valence, and anybody below the horizontal line takes on a a sense of a, a sort of it, moral inferiority, or or vice versa. Essentially, if you are the right combination of identities, then you are morally good, or you are you are you have the moral high ground. And then, if you are the wrong end of these uh, uh, identity spokes, then that counts against you, essentially, morally. And so, I wonder, essentially, where did that come from? And uh, and I think this is a good segue to how we got to the popular version of a lot of the intellectual. Uh, uh, thought that you're discussing, and how did it harden into um, this orthodoxy after the 2016 elections?
1: I think some origins in some of these traditions for that idea. There's a famous article by by a critical race theorist about sort of the backpack that you carry and the idea that sort of various forms of oppression um, sort of add, add, add weight, add load to that backpack. Um, and so when you have sort of you know each identity that you have that is sort of marginalized. Um, means that you but you, you have to walk around with a backpack that's heavier. I think mean, that's a plausible metaphor. There's nothing inherently uh, 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 wrong with that insight. Um, but of course, if you if you if you simplify it in the kind of ways that you then often see in educational settings or in other settings, it becomes a problem, right? To say that you know, irrespective of a context, um, you know, you can just add up these identities, and that'll tell you how oppressed uh, uh, you are, right? And so it might be that somebody who's the child of somebody whose dad is a British aristocrat and whose mother is, you know, a a Brahmin in in India who grew up very affluent and at the top of, you know, one of the longest standing uh, social hierarchies in human history and who, you know, comes to the United States to, you know, uh, go to an elite high school and then, you know, to college in the Ivy League. Um, you know, if you just look at some of those charts, it's going to be, you know, immigrant, um, uh, you know, person of color, super oppressed, right? And it's just reality is more complicated than that. Um, again, I, I want to really distinguish and distinguish in the book between the thought of the people I've discussed so far who I think are interesting, subtle theorists. I disagree with them in some profound ways. I think they've taken the wrong consequence uh, from their analysis. Um, I don't think ripping up the constitution is the right way to go. I think we should live up to the best in the constitution, recognizing what we failed to do. So trying to build that ever more perfect union. But but the people that, that I think deserve to be taken seriously, part of the problem is that those subtle ideas then get popularized and frankly vulgarized sometimes in ways that are really simplistic and then become uh, that much more damaging. Uh, and this, I think, is, is, is an example of that. The basic insight that belonging to certain kinds of identity groups might make you um, uh, carry a heavier load is one to which I wouldn't object, but when you then have sort of twelve-year-olds who have to sort of, uh, you know, score themselves in those various identity categories, and then in a very visible way take steps forward or backwards in certain educational settings, um, and 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 are ashamed on that, uh, you know, in, in circumstances that can sometimes be absurd, um, uh, like like one example uh, uh, recently of uh, you know a white girl in I believe Nevada who who was homeless. Um, and who is, you know, who is required by her school to to, to attend these sessions on how privileged she is because she's white, um, uh, you know, in those circumstances it just becomes quite damaging, I think. So so yeah, so 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 you have these ideas that that I think are, I disagree with, I have problems with, but are, are interesting subtle ideas. And by the way, uh, many of the people we talked about, as you mentioned, start to worry about these ideas as well. Said says, look, the point is not to revel in victimhood, it's to overcome victimhood, it's to create a society where fewer people are victims. Um, uh, 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 Spivak says, you know, in in the streets of India, there's tea wallers, people who sell tea. She starts to worry about the identity wallers at American universities and how humorless they are about this and how rigid they are about this. She, She starts to think that actually the term of strategic essentialism Should not be used because of the way that people like Narendra Modi in India are using their identity to to legitimize these forms of right wing authoritarianism. So, a lot of these thinkers are very subtle, but you you always have to be careful of what could become of your ideas. That's a very common theme in intellectual history. And these ideas then become popularized and applied in ways that I think are much more problematic. And there's sort of three main things that happen. One is that a lot of students start to encounter these ideas at universities, on campuses. Often in courses taught in the humanities and social sciences, often from administrators on campus, but have come to have a much bigger role in university life. Who are often much more far left, much more uh, skeptical of key uh, traditional liberal values and left-wing values like free speech, uh, and and re- indoctrinate students into those ideas. Uh, and 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 those kids then go into you know all kinds of jobs uh, as they graduate, and they don't mean to. Uh, go out and remake the world, but through their influence, they end up really changing the the norms and uh, and 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 the assumptions of uh, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, progressive uh, campaign organizations, um, tech companies, professional firms, and increasingly even uh, S and P five hundred corporations. They become particularly influential in institutions that um, recruit a lot from elite colleges where these ideas are more prevalent, but have a lot of young staff, and that claim for themselves that they have a positive mission that they serve in the world, because that makes it harder to say no. So the second set of developments have to do with social media. Um, and, and the starting point here actually is not Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or Instagram. It's uh, Tumblr, um, a platform that's now forgotten, that's now mostly defunct. Um, that uh, started in the late 2000s, early 2010s, attracted a lot of teenagers to it. And it really allowed experimentation with self-labeling, with identities. You could tag a term and then people could rally to it. It was very easy to uh, reblog videos and texts and photographs and memes. Um, And it made it possible for people to invent a lot of new Identities. You know, when you think back uh, before the rise of social media, you sort of could choose one of the identities that was prevalent in your high school. Um, and there was a limited number of people. So it was a limited number of identities. Now, suddenly, you could find 20 people, not in your high school of 1,000 people, but anywhere in the world, and start building an identity on that. And so it was on Tumblr that identities like demisexual or Libra gender started to emerge. And then you need an ideology to hold those different ideas together. And that became this popularized form of the identity synthesis. But we always have to defer to each other on identity grounds. But I can't understand you if you're from a different identity group. So I should defer to um, what you're telling me, that the worst offense is to uh, uh, offend somebody, whether deliberately or not, whether you said something that's bad or not, That therefore you need to be removed from our moral community if you've done something wrong. And slowly you start getting this in the written form on Uh, platforms like like Fort Catalog and everydayfeminism.com and salon.com and then eventually it starts entering uh, the mainstream.
0: I think um, just for the sake of... I'd love to dig into some more examples, but just for the sake of time, we should um, try to get at a couple of the really important flaws. Before before we do that, um, just to understand the political power of the popularized version of this ideology, one of the really striking... Uh, and probably one of the most off-putting parts of the political movement around this is the, is the with-us-or-against-us attitude. And you likened it to George W. Bush's claim that either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Can you talk about how that impacts uh, the political organizing on the left?
1: Yeah, so we've had uh, you know, a lot of members of very progressive movements start to speak out about this. There's been great reporting about how the ACLU and the Sierra Club and so many other organizations have torn themselves apart. You know, I have a a friend who uh, you know, disagrees with me on some of these things, but who for a long time thought, uh, as perhaps some of listeners to this podcast think, you know, look, the only threat is Donald Trump and that's what we should be focusing on and anything else is, is just a distraction. And I get that instinct. Um, Uh, But when I, you know, I didn't see her for a couple of years because of a pandemic. And when I first saw her at a social gathering afterwards, she made a beeline straight for me and said, Yasha, I I get what you've been talking about now. And the reason is that I don't want to name it, but a very progressive organization with a really important mission that she's a part of tore itself apart over the course of a pandemic Um, because of these rituals of moral purification, because, uh, uh, you know, Various members of the organization that have been there for a very long time, done you know heroic work with very little pay, um, uh, where were accused in frivolous ways of uh, uh, you know somehow being insufficiently ideologically pure um, by 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 some people in this in, in in this organization, and she said you know she she ended up quitting the organization because. The, the, it was not getting its work done and, 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 the, and the atmosphere had become so toxic. So, so you see that from many, many people in these, in these organizations. And it has an instinct um, that I think is partially rooted in the victory of Donald Trump. So one of the really interesting things that I found in doing research for this book is the sort of psychology of uh, dissenters within groups. And basically what it says is that normally people are pretty tolerant of in-group critics. If, you know, we've known each other for 10 years and we're a member of the same group and you're saying, hey, I'm worried about where this group is going. I think perhaps we're making a mistake. Mostly I'm going to listen to you. Uh, And that's a really important self-correcting mechanism to stop groups from going off the rails in all kinds of ways. But when there's what psychologists call a condition of external threat, when members of a group think, hey, there's this outside threat, then you stop being tolerant of those in-group dissenters. You say, hey, you must secretly be on the side of the people who are threatening us. You must uh, uh, secretly be a traitor. We can't trust you at all. In fact, we become more intolerant of in-group critics than of certain out-group critics, right? Um, And I think this is what happened after Donald Trump won in 2016. Very understandably, uh, a lot of people did feel threatened by that, did feel that he posed a very real threat to our institutions and to the, to, to, to the faith, to the livelihoods, to uh, the decent treatment of, of, of many Americans. Um, and at first, that energy was directed uh, towards you know, the Women's March and impeachment and protests over his immigration ban and so on. And the hope was always, this can't last, right? After three or six or nine months, somehow he's going to be out of office and then we can breathe. But as that was failing and as people started to realize we don't have power over Trump, they can't remove him from office, a lot of that anger and frustration turned inwards. And so suddenly people exercised power over the people in their own social circle because they, there they could exercise power. And so it was no longer Trump. It was you know the person in the social circle who, who, who said something wrong or who was not sufficiently With a program, Um, there's a great paper by an anthropologist in the 1990s saying, you know, how come that the enemy of humanity always ends up being the guy in the office down the corridor? (laughs) And that I think became the the dynamic of of many of these movements, and it was it it was unhealthy, and that was then really sort of sanctified by a few texts that uh, made dissenting with these ideas explicitly uh, uh, evidence. Of being morally guilty, right? So, 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 so you have somebody like Robin DiAngelo saying, you know, if you disagree with anything I say, that in itself is just a symptom of white fragility, right? So, so, if you disagree with me on any count, that is proof that actually you just invested in white supremacy and and so on. And and Ibram X. Kendi says, uh, you know, the United States Constitution is racist. Uh, we basically have to abolish the constitution in order to be good anti racists And by the way, there's no such thing as being not racist, right? So either you're with me on extreme political positions like effectively wanting to abolish the US constitution, or you're a racist. It's one or the other. And this is where these ideas really become uh, uh, you know, a closed loop where, where you're no longer able to or allow to disagree with them.
0: And this speaks to—it's come up on the podcast a couple of times before. But you mentioned the progressive institutions that are tearing them apart, and you know, I won't ask which one that was, but it's a—it's a among political operators, especially inside Washington D.C. This is a known phenomenon uh, that many people have have many people on the left have lamented how the effectiveness of so many organizations has really suffered because they can't pursue. They're noble goals because they're so preoccupied with the internal strife. Um, essentially, the, 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 the culture is being eaten alive uh, by its own. Let's turn to some of the flaws here. And then I want to drill down on on one specific one, which is about speech, because we've talked about it a lot on the podcast. But you highlight five applications of the identity synthesis that you say, give real voice to a concern about genuine injustice. I think that much should be clear so far, but they fail to address the grievances and they undermine the goal they intend to serve. Can you outline what those, what those are? And then, and then I'd like to spend a little bit of time on the speech problem.
1: We've sort of started to talk about it a little bit earlier. You know, How do we actually understand each other? Can we uh, uh, understand somebody who stands at a different intersection of identities. Now, there's a subtle uh, uh, tradition in epistemology and the branch of philosophy that concerns itself with what we can know and how we can know things about the world of what's called standpoint epistemology or standpoint theory. The idea that perhaps what I know about the world might be influenced by by where I stand, in particular, by the kind of social identities that I have. And I think at some level, this is uh, clear and intuitively true, Um, right? I, I don't intuitively have the same experience uh, as women might of what it is like to fear that you are going to be sexually harassed when you take the subway. Um, I don't have the same experience as black men in America, sadly, uh, often face of being a little afraid of walking down the street when you see a cop, because perhaps he might stop and frisk you and, 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 and uh, 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 treat you brutally or violently in, 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 that process. Right. So I think it's absolutely obviously true that we We naturally are influenced by where we stand, and that means we might not fully understand each other off a The question is whether we should therefore give up on that. What a lot of people uh, now are saying in this applied version of these ideas is: you know, I essentially am different from you because of a group I'm in. That gives me particular experiences of a world that you're never going to be able to understand. I cannot communicate those in a meaningful way, even when it comes to politics, and therefore you know, what I as a white guy should do is to, is to is to defer to you. It's simply to say, I don't have my own political judgment. Whatever you as a member of a more oppressed group tell me is what I should do, right? I think that is profoundly wrong. That uh, first of all, um, not all members of particular groups share the same kind of experiences. Um, that many women, for example, have these experiences of caregiving, that are crucial to their identity, but some women do not and do not want to be seen in that way and and, and that's not how they self-define and that's not the experience they've had. I think that we actually need cumulative knowledge about the social world. Um, uh, uh, People who are more oppressed may have certain kinds of insights. Those who have uh, access to certain oppressive uh, institutions may actually understand something about the world that uh, is important to to thinking about how to create a more just world as well. But most importantly, that uh, the politically salient parts of that first person experience can be communicated. I might not be able to fully understand what it feels like to fear cops, but I can understand fully well that there is an injustice. I can understand that on the basis of my own values, I don't want to live in a society where I can go and ask a cop for for help if I'm in need but My compatriot who happens to have a different skin color cannot. I I know that that is unjust, but that's not the kind of society in which I want to live. And so I think that politically important piece of this, that's not just the experiential piece, but sort of what follows from it can in fact be communicated. And finally, I just think it's a mistake to say, hey, delegate to other people. Because most people are not going to do that. Most people just simply aren't that invested in social justice to say, I'm not going to have my own opinion on this. And even the people who pretend to do that are going to choose the representative of that group with whom they already agree. Bayard Rustin, the great uh, black gay civil rights activist, uh, said that the idea of a homogeneous black community is the invention of a few people who want to lead it and of whites with their own interests, right? Right. Groups aren't homogeneous in that way. And so I'm always going to be able to pick somebody who says, hey, I think we should do this because this guy who speaks for black people says we should do it. That's not a genuine form of politics. Another point uh, I make is about cultural appropriation. Um, That's another key uh, area where we apply those ideas. Now, look, I think there's cases of what we've come to call cultural appropriation, but are clearly unjust. And that is where a lot of this instinct comes from. Um, You know, white musicians in the 50s and 60s stealing songs of black musicians who weren't able to have a big career because of Jim Crow and other forms of discrimination. uh, That was clearly uh, unjust. The question is whether the term of cultural appropriation can help us explain what was unjust about those situations and therefore whether a prohibition on cultural appropriation can help us uh, have a society that is going to be uh, uh, better. And I think the answer to that is quite clearly no. Um, What was wrong about those things was not that white musicians brought those to a larger audience is that black musicians weren't able to have big careers because they were banned from concert venues because major record labels would not sign them. We have a very straightforward way of explaining what was wrong, which was the outright explicit, terrible discrimination of those black musicians. And uh, therefore, I think that uh, what we call cultural appropriation is sometimes bad and sometimes not bad. When it's bad, we can express what's bad about it in much more straightforward ways. And where we can't express what's bad about it in straightforward ways, we should celebrate the kind of mutual influence uh, on culture that is always going to be a part of a vibrant, diverse society like the United States. To me, those ways in which our cultures clash against each other and create something new and end up being inspirational and provocative, that is part of the beauty of living in the United States, not one of the things that we should be concerned about. And by the way, it was kind of concerns about cultural purity have always historically been a right-wing rather than a left-wing phenomenon. Even under these new clothes, these new uh, terminology, it continues to be a right-wing rather than a left-wing concern.
0: You, I remember the example of the, um, the shop that was making Vietnamese pho that was shut down for, not, for, the, for the soup essentially not being sufficiently authentic <laughs> and,
1: that, and that the person making it was culturally appropriating the recipe. Yeah, I mean, there's many of these examples, and and again, you know, um, this is not a book with lots of examples from cancel culture, right? I think cancel culture, we can talk about it. I think it can, it can be a problem; it can exist, but 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 it's it's not about you know pundits getting shouted at on Twitter. It's about uh, both having the wrong social customs in ways that actually. Uh, in impede real progress for, for us as a society. But, but, but it is sometimes about people being treated unfairly. You know, one of the people I think about in this context is a former student of mine who you know, was an undergraduate at a, a college student at a um, Ivy League university and who during the pandemic um, uh, was interning at the university's art museum and to engage people when people couldn't go and see the exhibitions in person um, they asked the, the interns to recreate some of the artworks in the collection. And uh, this girl has, her mother is Chinese. She was born in the United States. Um, and she decided to recreate the self-portrait of this Chinese artist with her mother, uh, which was a kind of commentary on beauty standards and so on. So with her Chinese mother, this girl who thinks of herself as Chinese-American, um, recreates this artwork. Uh, and the director of a museum says, oh, beautiful, you've done this wonderfully. It'll go up on the website in a few days. She's elated. And then she gets an email from the curator uh, uh, at the museum, uh, an Asian American curator saying, how dare you engage in cultural appropriation? This is wholly inappropriate. You've done something really bad. And she says, I don't understand. There must be a misunderstanding here. I, I, I'm Asian American. My mother is Chinese. It's like, yes, but your father is not. Uh, her father, I believe, is neither white nor Asian. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, so, so you, this is not your artwork to appropriate. You're not sufficiently Chinese. So this university basically applied a racial purity test in, in the name of progressive ideals to shout at this poor girl for, 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 for creating a beautiful piece of art. Right. Is that a case of cancel culture? I, I, I don't know. I don't know what yeah. term to use for it, but I but think it's clearly it's, unjust. Similar. Yeah. It's clearly unjust, and it's not the sort of society in which we should want to live. Yeah,
0: as I was reading that story, I couldn't help but think about you know Harry Potter and and the purebloods and the test of whether or not one was sufficiently pureblood to become a wizard or, uh, or not. And and obviously anyone familiar with the books knows that that was you know they're the bad guys. <laughs> but that 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 form of of uh, essentialism uh, doesn't doesn't lead anywhere good. Okay, I want to talk about speech for, for, for a bit here. One of the, um, one of the things I've been really concerned about, uh, over the last few years has been, has been the sharp jump in cancel culture. Uh, some people call it consequence culture. Um, and this persistent confusion among many of my friends who are Democrats who don't get why it's a problem, don't get why this is a big deal. And they see, uh, Speakers getting uninvited or people getting you know quote unquote deplatformed as a form of accountability. And there was one moment on a recent conversation you had with uh, Greg Lukianoff from the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, who's been on this podcast, uh, that really made a, a point to me, which was novel about what was so pernicious about this trend. Um, so if we have that clip, I'd love to play it for you, and then we can discuss uh, a couple of the things he gets at.
2: We need much more serious commitment to actual reforms for higher education. I think we need institutions that actually are better insulated from public pressure that can help us you know, have more confidence in what our experts are actually producing. Because, And here's the most pernicious thing about cancel culture, is that it leads very quickly to an American public that says, wait a second. If I've heard a single story of one of you experts losing their job over having the wrong opinion on whatever it is from like COVID to public policy to whatever, of course, like the trans issues is, is some of the most radioactive stuff. If I hear about even one example of someone actually like losing their job or being threatened with losing their job. That makes me aware of the fact that there's huge social pressure for experts to actually conform their opinions. And one of the major points for making Cancelling of the American Mind is that it's devastating to people's trust and belief in experts. So I've even been thinking about attempts to recreate ivory tower institutions that are better insulated from public pressure that can actually be more relied upon because I left doing the research for Cancelling of the American Mind quite cynical
0: so, the, the thing that this dovetails with that we've discussed many times, and I think that many listeners will be nodding their heads about, is this, this lack of trust, the erosion of trust in institutions across the board. Um, whether it's journalism or academia, certainly there is, as Tom Nichols calls it, the death of expertise, um, which is this, this very widespread um, uh, suspicion. That the people who are supposed to be seeking truth and revealing it to us, who are supposed to be doing the research that we don't want everybody running around in lab coats you know, in, their, in their kitchens doing, um, are, are not telling us the whole truth. And what Greg was getting at there is, uh, is I think, the reason why, which is dovetailing with you know the, the, the social pressure to conform your opinions especially among experts, um, has led everybody else to really question what they're getting from the experts in the first place. And so um, maybe this isn't directly cancel culture, but it certainly is a widespread consequence of what you're getting at in, in, in the identity synthesis. And I wonder if you can speak to the connection between the two and our ability to have truth seeking conversations, I think like the one we're having here, uh, with 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 in good faith, as being essential to the function of a liberal democracy?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, look, one, one way of talking about this is simply to, to ask people to wonder about themselves. Do you remember a time in the last four or five years in which you wanted to express an opinion? You had a thought, and you thought, mm, if I say this now, perhaps... Uh, you know, I'll get in trouble. Perhaps people get really mad at me in a way that doesn't quite feel proportional. And do you think that the opinion you had was evil? Were you going around wanting to, you know, uh, say terrible racist things? Or or did you say things that you thought were reasonable, that you believed in, that you thought would help us build a better society? And yet you bit your tongue because you thought, hmm, perhaps better not. I I myself, and I think I'm, you know... uh, a public speaker and writer and academic and, and my jobs that talk about these things. I've had those moments. And I can tell you that I've had a shocking number of lunches with really influential people in society over the last years where casually they say, oh, of course I would never say this publicly. Um, so I think that's a problem in itself. We should want a culture of free speech in which we can bring our whole selves to the discussion. That's what I try to encourage in my classroom, for people to genuinely, not to say nasty things, not to say knee-jerk things, but to think seriously about issues and then have a genuine conversation about it. Uh, and we can facilitate those spaces, but it's hard work. And I tell you my students are very grateful for that uh, because they ha- they don't have that opportunity all of that often. And that, that saddens me because that's a lot of what a university education should be about. So, so that's just to speak to sort of, do we think we have a cultural problem or not? Um, if all of you are saying, no, 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 that's never been on my mind, well, perhaps I'm an outlier and, and, and we'll, have a, you know, we'll have a disagreement about this. But I think a lot of you are going to have thought, you know what, yes, I do remember moments like that. And if that's the case, I don't think that's for the good. It's not for the good because people lose trust when they smell that the people who govern them say one thing on air and another thing in private in exactly the ways in which Greg Lukianoff has has pointed out in in, in that clip. For me, this is part of a broader argument I make about free speech. You know, we tend to make arguments about free speech in terms of all the great things we'll get from having free speech. And I I believe many of those arguments. If you've never read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, I really encourage you to read that, particularly chapter two. It's a beautiful account of a way in which uh, being able to say things uh, 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 you know, preserves the possibility that truth lives to another day. It doesn't mean that there's a marketplace of ideas and the good ideas always went out, but it means the good ideas might be preserved for another day. Um, you know, Mill says, "You know, how can we be so sure uh, that everything we believe today is right when we put to death Socrates and punished Galileo Galilei for what they had to say in their day? Can we be so arrogant as to think we're the first generation to get everything right? And uh, Mill makes a beautiful point that Even when ideas we censor are wrong, we still lose something from that because uh, we would end up holding our beliefs as dogmas rather than as living truths. And when somebody does come to challenge them, we don't have good arguments to actually explain what's wrong with those ideas. In terms of cancel culture, he says, look, part of the injustice is punishing people for what they say. A lot of the injustices, all of the people who would speak up and whose wisdom were going to lose because they decided to bite their tongue. All of those things are important. But what I'm most concerned with is not the great things we get from having free speech, which is really what Mill was talking about. It's the terrible things that happen when we don't have free speech. One of those, and I wish that I'd written that in the book, is it leads to a loss of trust in experts who seem to be biting their tongue in that kind of way. I think that's a great point. The second one is who is going to be in a position to make those decisions? Is it the most marginalized, the most powerless who decide what gets censored and what doesn't get censored? No. Since when have the most marginalized, most powerless ever been making decisions in our society? By definition, whatever, you know, the the government... Uh, 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 you know, censorship bureau or the, you know, Silicon Valley uh, speech facilitation committee or whatever they would call it is going to be deciding. It's going to be powerful people. The sort of people of political appointments in Washington, D.C. or the sort of people who are tech executive in Silicon Valley. Those are not the most oppressed people in our society. Are you kidding me? Um, And I think this is a mistake that, that the progressive space has made because of where these conversations originate. When you're debating about speech codes on super progressive campuses, it's plausible to think that, hey, the people who are going to make those decisions are all going to have the quote-unquote right values, right? But once you start doing that, you're going to have laws in Florida passed by people like Ron DeSantis limiting what you can teach. By the way, my course, which is critical of some of these ideas, could not be taught at a public university in Florida because I want students to see both sides of the argument. And I assigned Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw as well as my critique of them. I could not teach that course in Florida. That's what it looks like when you start impeding on free speech. And by the way, a core promise of our electoral system is that if you lose an election, you can fight for another day. You can leave office uh, in peace because you know that you're going to have the next years to try and convince people to vote you back into office. If you say no, if you lose office, you might also lose your ability to speak. You're raising the stakes of elections, which make it harder to sustain the core elements of our democracy, and that too should be a concern.
0: Since we're coming up on time here, and I want to make sure we leave plenty of room for a a full-throated defense of universalism, I think we should do that now. And then I'd love to close with some recommendations for listeners and how they can uh, embody the principles of liberalism in, in, in daily life and perhaps feel more confident in standing up to where they think this, uh, ideology might be going wrong. But first, before we do that, let's talk about universalism. Uh, you conclude that the identity synthesis stands in opposition to universal values that are foundational to liberal democracy, AKA what we're doing here. Um, can you elaborate on, on why the two are fundamentally incompatible and what you believe is the solution for a society that seems increasingly fragmented by group identities and sort of obsessed with group identities?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked about the main themes of the identity synthesis and where they come from. We've talked about some of the applications of a popularized form of the identity synthesis and why we should be concerned about the rejection of free speech, about the rejection of a mutual cultural influence, the rejection of our ability to understand each other with hard work across these different lines. Um, one other way of talking about this is to really boil down the identity synthesis into sort of a three core postulates um, to do what philosophers call a rational reconstruction of their core ideas um, and I think that really you can boil it down to three main ideas. Number one, that the key prism to understand society, the most important uh, lenses you need to put on to understand what's happening in history, and even to interpret interpersonal relationships, is the basic categories of identity like race, gender, and sexual orientation. When Marxist thought it was all about class adherence of the identity, synthesis in that sense says no, 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 it's all about Race, gender, and sexual orientation. Those are the things you need in order to interpret the world. The second point they make is to say the ideals of the United States Constitution, of the Bill of Rights, of the broader values in other countries that uh, sustain our liberal democracies, uh, they sound nice, but they're really just designed to pull the wool over your eyes. The purpose is to perpetuate racial and sexual and other forms of domination. And therefore, number three, what should we do? Rather than trying to live up to them, we should reject them. We should make how we treat each other in personal life and social situations and at work, but also how the state treats all of us in public policy explicitly depend on the kinds of groups to which we belong. That is the only way forward. Now, I think that uh, uh, there's a response to that that uh, liberals like myself uh, should should make. And it is capable of uh, being very clear and open-eyed about the injustices that persist in our society. It is as capable, in fact more capable, of making progress towards a better society. Um, But it and it does that because it holds on to some of the core universal aspirations in our political system. So the first point is to say, yes, yes, of course, race, gender and sexual orientation are one important lens for understanding what goes on in society. You cannot understand America in 1900, and you can't understand America in 2023 without being aware of the ways in which some people are being discriminated against, for example. But What is the most important lens, prism to understand society in any one context is going to depend in some circumstances, it is race. In other circumstances, it's going to be class. In other circumstances, it's going to be religion. In other circumstances, it's individual attributes, how somebody acted, what somebody said. It's our ideals, our values. It's all kinds of different things, you know. In France, they tend to look at everything through the prism of class without even looking at race. And so they ascribe to class some things that are really about race. In the United States, many social scientists in their studies don't have any class variable. And so they end up ascribing a bunch of things to race that actually uh, is about class. An intelligent understanding of the world draws on both of those things and other things at the same time. Secondly, yes, yes, of course, America has historically failed and failed painfully to live up to the noble ideals inscribed in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, in the Declaration of Independence. But that tension has allowed abolitionists, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, to make progress. They didn't say, rip those principles up. They say, by what right are you telling me if if I'm gay, by what right are you telling me that I can't enjoy the same protections from the state and can't have respect for the same kind of love that you have just because it's with somebody who happens to have the same gender? By what right are you excluding me from something that you say is a universal uh, promise to all Americans? By what right... uh, Am I excluded from being able to ride this bus to have this employment opportunity when you say that all men are born equal? And so I reject the idea that we haven't made any political progress. It's offensive to say America is as racist today as it was in 1850 or 1950. Not offensive to us, the great Americans living today, but to the people who suffered much more extreme forms of injustice in the past. And so therefore, what should we do? We shouldn't rip up those principles. We should double down on the attempt, on the hard struggle, uh, to live up to them. And here, I I, I feel that uh, uh, you know this is the best tradition that we have in American politics. It's a tradition that goes from Frederick Douglass through Abraham Lincoln, to Martin Luther King Jr., to Bayard Rustin, to uh, to, 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 to to Barack Obama, and many others. Um, you know, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass pointed out the hypocrisy of his fellow citizens celebrating the 4th of July when slavery was still on a reality of the United States. But he didn't say, let's abolish the constitution. He said, we should have the same rights. He didn't say free speech is bad because slavers are able to say terrible things. He said, free speech is the dread of tyrants because it allows us to argue against slavery and for abolition. Martin Luther King did not say, uh, he didn't just point out the Czech that was made out to African Americans by the Bank of Justice was fraudulent," he he said, "and it must cash that check. It must actually live up to that. So that I think is is the right set of responses.
0: Okay, there's a um, a mention that you know criticisms we, we've discussed criticism from within a group might be perceived as betrayal, especially in times of threat, and I think. Many listeners now will, as you noted earlier, think that we are in a time of threat. And the I have two questions really, and I think they inform each other um, to close, which is whether whether and to what extent you have faced backlash yourself from your peers for your criticism of the identity synthesis for taking on this work in the first place um and how how you how you respond to those criticisms how you generally think about them and uh and i would like to leave listeners with some way of operationalizing the case that you're making here and uh some tools some some ideas for how they might speak up themselves for how they might um think about the world a little bit differently so maybe you can tie those two together
1: yeah. So, um, you know, I've certainly faced plenty of, of of criticism and plenty of people being mad at me on, on, on Twitter. And sometimes, you know, uh, one of the strange things about political life is that when you agree with people, they think you're super smart. And when you disagree with them, they suddenly think you're an idiot. And I've had plenty of people who, you know, used to be my friends in grad school, snipe at how stupid I am on Twitter. And I think, you know, you asked me to read every chapter of your dissertation, suddenly I'm stupid, you know. Um, so there's unpleasant experiences, but thankfully I haven't had uh, any real attempts to to quote unquote cancel me um and and I think that 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 is perhaps not atypical i think uh, uh you know there has been a hot house atmosphere in which a lot of people undeservedly had terrible things happen to them but but by and large, if you argue carefully and, and 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 honestly for your position um you're going to be fine, and so I want to encourage people who agree with me. I know many may disagree with me, but those who agree with me um you know yes, worry about. What the consequence might be, be thoughtful about how you argue about those ideas, but don't be too scared um, because actually most people are going to agree with you, I think. Most people, even uh, uh, in your milieu, are probably uh, on the same page about many of these points and many of those ideas. And so I fought really hard about how to empower people to argue against these ideas in the right ways. And I talk about that a lot in the last uh, part of the, the book. Here are a few basic points. So first is, I think it's really important to claim the moral high ground. I see two sort of pitfalls here, right? Like one is um, the person who perhaps is in a super progressive milieu, who's sort of like so apologetic to argue back against some of these ideas, so nervous about it, that you make sort of 27 caveats before you even start to speak. Um, and so you sound nervous and guilty. Um, and the second is sort of the inverse of that, perhaps people who tend to be more conservative, who um, sort of play the role of a jerk, right? It's a little bit like, like the kid who's afraid of failing a test in school. And so they, uh, uh, so they sort of, um, you know, don't even try to do well on it because of what it might say about them if, if they failed anyway. And so they're just like playing the role of a jerk and you know, like, well, you're going to hate me anyway. So let me just say this in the maximally provocative way, right? No, claim the moral high ground. Um, I might be wrong about any of those things. We all might be wrong about what we believe, but I believe these things for a reason. I thought about this hard. I think that I'm in agreement with some of the most inspirational figures in in American history and many of those things. I'm not ashamed of what I'm arguing for. I'm proud of what I'm arguing for. I think these are ideas that are going to allow us to make society better. And yes, actually win electoral majorities against people like Donald Trump. So so try to argue from that calm self-confidence. Another point is you should persuade rather than vilify. Uh, some of the people who have argued against this ideology most convincingly used to be true believers in it, used to really buy it. Uh, so, so always uh, try to convince people. And people do change their mind. They never change the mind in the kind of way that we might do in an Aaron Sorkin movie where, you know, <laughs> you have like the decisive argument and they're like, oh, whoa, you must be right. I've changed my mind this second because of how <laughs> clever you are. Um, but nothing against Aaron Sorkin, but perhaps a little bit. But uh, but uh, you know, over time, people change their mind. Lots of people change their mind over time. So 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 play on that. You know, address the reasonable majority. I think most people genuinely care about fighting injustice, and most people also want a society in which we can communicate, in which we can have an optimistic vision of the future. Focus on those rather than doing battle on social media with people who are just there to antagonize. And finally, don't become a reactionary, right? One of the key reasons why I wanted to write this book is to give people the even-handed, smart, thoughtful case against the identity trap. Because a lot of what's happening is people saying anything that anyone might call woke is terrible. And because we don't have any positive values that we share, we're just going to base ourselves on opposing sphinx. And, And that way you give away your own position. You just come to believe the opposite of whatever people you dislike are saying. And that's a really, really terrible guide for for how to act in the world. So be principled. My principles are that of of a liberal. Um, Yours might be that of a socialist or a Marxist or perhaps a conservative or perhaps a Buddhist or a Jew or a Christian or whatever it is that you bring to the world, whatever your prism is for what you think the best kind of society is going to be argue on the basis of those substantive values in a sincere way trying to persuade reasonable people rather than getting into this uh, reactionary trap
0: Yasha I think you have uh, done exactly what you set out to do in this book and so much more and I have pages and pages of notes that we're not going to get to (laughs) but um, I just want to thank you for being here thank you for your valuable time and um, come back anytime this was a pleasure. Thank
1: you so, so much for having me on, Ron. This is a real pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this two-part series. We always enjoy reading messages from you, but I'm especially curious what you thought of this episode. So feel free to drop me a line at podcast at politicology.com. And if you have two minutes and two thumbs, we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help even more people find the show. I'll see you in the next episode.